0: What is the Christian's relationship to the law of God? Summarized in the Ten Commandments. What's the relationship that a Christian has has to God's law? I want to answer that question by summarizing our confession of faith. Chapter 19, paragraph 6. A Christian is not under the law as a covenant of works. We're not in an agreement with God where He says, if you'll obey My law, then you can be saved. We're not under the law as, in a, as a covenant of works. The law of God neither justifies nor condemns a Christian. The law of God is our rule of life. The law of God shows us how God expects us to live And in showing us how God expects us to live, binds us to live accordingly. The law of God uncovers our sins. The law of God reveals to us the great need we have for the obedience of Christ imputed to us. The law of God restrains us by forbidding sin. Because a Christian looks at the law of God and says, Well, if God forbids that, I don't want to do it. The law of God reminds us of what God may do in consequence to our sins. The law of God reminds us what God may do as a reward for our obedience. Even though He's not bound by a covenant, either way, And the fact that a Christian takes all of this into account and lives accordingly, aspiring after obedience and fleeing from disobedience, does not mean that that person, a Christian, is under the law and not under grace. Rather, as our confession says in chapter 16, paragraph 2, good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a lively faith. In other words, obedience to God's law is evidence that we are under grace and not under law. Only grace, the grace of God, can empower any individual to obey the commandments of God. Another question. What is the law's relationship to our salvation? Well then, to answer that, we have to ask... What do you mean by salvation? Salvation is a, is a broad term in the Scriptures. What is the relationship to the law in our salvation? Well, if you're talking about regeneration, well, the law of God is that which is written on the heart in regeneration. If you're talking about justification, the law of God is that which Christ satisfied as our substitute in our place. If you're talking about sanctification, the law of God is the blueprint that the Holy Spirit uses as He works in us and produces out of us uh, a moral standard, uh, an ethical uh, way of life. It's broad in its application. While the relationship of the law of God to salvation and to the Christian has been a point of contention since the day that Adam and Eve came down the east side of the Mount of Eden, the Scriptures are very clear that we as Christians should not be afraid of the language of law, or obedience. We don't have to be afraid of that. Why? Well, back to the top. We're not under the law as a covenant of works. We're not earning our salvation. We don't have to be afraid of this language. We, Christians of all people, have been set free from our bondage to sin. We are the ones liberated to obey the law of liberty. We of all people have been given the very power of God to walk in His ways. We of all people on the earth, have the opportunity to experience the blessing that comes with living according to God's path of peace in our lives. Only we get to experience that. Now, in recent weeks, we've been talking about this idea of of our relationship to God and the gospel and obedience to the law really under the broad category of sanctification. I've called it gospel obedience because we're not talking about how one becomes a Christian. We're talking about once a person is a Christian, now how do we live and what does the law look like for us? According to the biblical doctrine of salvation in its broadest sense, including sanctification specifically between the legal work of justification and the eternal hope of glorification, that is to say, in the lives that we're living right now, throughout our lives, we find in Scripture the promise, expectation, and requirement of a flesh and blood righteousness with our name on it. We find in Scripture that God promises that a Christian will live a life of righteousness. Never... Sinless perfectionism, that's not what we're talking about, but a Christian is going to strive to live a life of righteousness. God promises that. We find in Scripture statements and descriptions of a Christian and the work of God which lead us to expect that a Christian is going to live a life of righteousness. So I can expect that of myself. You can expect that of myself. I can expect that of yourself. If you profess to be a Christian, I I could say the Word of God leads me to expect you to live a certain way. We also find in Scripture statements which show that God requires a Christian to live a life of righteousness. And you'll you often see these questions phrased in this type of language. Is a Christian required to? And you know, it's the only commandment that's ever brought into question is what? Keep the Sabbath? Is a Christian required to keep the Sabbath? You never see a Q&A where people say, is a Christian required to stop murdering his neighbor? Is a Christian required to stop lying? Nobody ever asks that question. It's always, is a Christian required to keep the Sabbath? As if it's a bad thing that God would have us say, if God would tell us to set aside one day in seven and just devote yourself to worship. Are we required to worship? For a whole day, excluding the time we sleep, you know that, that that time is not even used. People see the law as a bad thing, but yeah, God requires a Christian live a life of righteousness, and that's not bad. That's good. It's good for us. Now, last week we began looking at that the the promise or the promises, and I said that God has promised that those who've come under the saving power of the Holy Spirit who've been born again, who've exercised true saving faith in Christ. They've been justified freely by His grace. A Christian, God promises that they will live righteous lives or God has promised that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. And to show that promise, we begin with the first of three authors, the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel, and the Apostle Paul. And I told you that all of these are going to build on each other. I had originally intended to do them all at once because I really need you to see that they all build upon each other. But but we only got to Jeremiah last week. Uh, The plan was to go Ezekiel and Paul this week. We're only going to get to Ezekiel today. Um, But just keep in mind all of this builds together. They build upon each other and influence each other. But we only looked at Jeremiah, and this is what we said. According to God's Word through the prophet Jeremiah, God has promised that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. We looked at Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three, a prophecy concerning the new covenant, which says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So we saw there God promises through the prophet Jeremiah that he's going to institute a new covenant that differs from the old covenant, at least in this, that the law of God is going to be written on the heart of every member of that new covenant. And so then we ask, what does that mean? What does it mean to have the law of God written on the heart? In comparing old covenant and new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul substitutes the notion of the law written on the heart with... The Spirit left on the heart. So to have the law of God written on the heart is synonymous with the indwelling Holy Spirit and vice versa. They go together. Obviously, the indwelling Spirit is is much broader. There's more to it than that. But it's not less than that. The salvation offered by way of a new covenant is one in which the law is written on a heart of flesh. Paul says, The heart of flesh with the law of God etched by the Holy Spirit will act according to that law. Therefore, we concluded that God promises through the prophet Jeremiah that a Christian, one who's been born again, will keep the Ten Commandments. Now that brings us to the second author, the prophet Ezekiel. And we'll be looking at these two texts this morning that we read and we'll turn a few more times, but all right here within this basic text. Context. And our contention is that according to God's word through the prophet Ezekiel, God has promised that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. Jeremiah said it. Now we're going to see that Ezekiel says the same thing. We're going to look at these two passages from Ezekiel 36 and 37, but we're going to look at them backwards. We're going to start in chapter 37 and work our way backwards. To chapter 36. And, and the reason I want to do that is because I think that's going to help us to decipher some of the details in chapter 36. The, the shorter passage actually helps us understand the longer passage, if that makes sense. So first, Ezekiel 37, 24. That'll be our first passage. And, and you, I want you to be able to see it because we're going to look at several things here and in, in this chapter specifically. first the context of what's happening here just like we did with Jeremiah what's what's happening all around very often these major prophets if we're honest we read them and we kind of scratch our heads when we get done and we pray Lord help me because we don't really it's hard to get our minds wrapped around the full picture of what's happening whereas Jeremiah was one of the last prophets leading up to the exile Ezekiel is actually in the exile as he begins to write. We see in Ezekiel 1 1, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles, beside the Kibar Canal, the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. So As as Ezekiel is prophesying, the nation has already reached that pinnacle of rebellion. God allowed them to to fill up the measure of their iniquities and He brought full judgment upon them. They've they've been taken into captivity. Jerusalem has been destroyed when Ezekiel is writing. It's in the midst of this exile, 70 years of judgment, that Ezekiel writes. Now, back to our text in, in chapter 37... If you look at verse 21 of chapter 37, it says, Then say to them, them, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. They're in captivity. As Ezekiel writes, he's talking about something that's going to happen in the future again. This is not something that's past. It's not something that's present because He's in the captivity. He's talking about something in the future. Remember, a promise is something you're going to do in the future. So what we're reading here in this this context is a promise, something that God's going to do in the future. Now, after we read verse 24, after that verse in verse 27, sort of summing up, up this little section, we read these words, my dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Last week in Jeremiah 31, we read verse 33, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the summary of all of the fullness of the new covenant promises. You could sum every bit of it up in, I will be their God and they shall be my people. It all finds its climax in this exclusive communal relationship between God and His people. We took the time last week to prove that these promises like this find their fulfillment in the New Covenant, even though the language is couched in Old Covenant Uh, verbiage, like Israel, like Judah, like land and things like that. They find their fulfillment in the spiritual salvation of a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. The new covenant, if we're honest, consists primarily of Gentiles. So it's not exclusive to Israel and Judah, these new covenant promises. To solidify that, we see in Revelation 21, verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. Same promise. We know that the conquerors in Revelation are all Christians from every tribe and language and people and nation who hold fast their faith until the end. They're the conquerors. All of those people get this promise. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And that promise sums up all of the new covenant or what we might call the covenant of grace. So several things in the context here of Ezekiel 37 give us reason to see this passage as a passage dealing with the new covenant. I'm just trying to defend that particular point. Now with that under our belt, look at verse 24. This is our, our primary focus. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. First we see God promises that they will have one king. Back up in verse 22, he had said, I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over them and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. One king shall be king over them all. That's the promise. I'm going to gather all of these people up under one king. Here we see David is that king. If I read it correctly, my servant David shall be king over them. Now, we know from history David was a great king, a mighty king. Any nation, I believe, on the earth would be blessed to have David as their king. And I think if they had David as their king, a man after God's own heart, they could expect that that king would rule in righteousness. The only downside to this promise is that David's been dead for about 400 years as Ezekiel writes these words. So anybody listening to Ezekiel could have said with Peter, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. You're you're talking about David. David's long gone. So that presents us with a problem. Problem. How can David be king over this people? Well, we've already proved that the language, though it it, it is couched in, in titles and places that these people would have understood, very often it can apply more broadly. We've already seen in these prophetic passages, very often a name or place will be given, not because it's to be taken literally, but because that which it signified to the original audience would have been especially relevant. When you said David, their ears would have perked up. David? You mean the greatest king we've ever had? And I believe it's safe to say that for any Jewish person to hear that David would be their king would engender excitement, it would engender hope, and they would have known full well you can't be talking about the literal David. They would have understood that. David's dead. He's buried his graves with us. The promise is that David shall be king over them. Who's them? Well, if this is a prophecy concerning the New Testament, as I think we've shown last week and today, then David is promised to be king over all of those who are in the new covenant. When God says in verse 21, "...I'll take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them them from all around and bring them to their own land." He's not meaning to be exclusive to that nation. There was a partial fulfillment in these words when the Jews were allowed to return to their land, but that was only a remnant. The return of the exiles to Jerusalem could in no way have fulfilled the fullness of the prophecies that were made about the coming covenant. The reference to Israel in verse 21 and them in verse 24 are references to the new covenant people of God. God is going to gather His elect from the four corners of the earth, people of every tribe and language and people and nation. They're not going to be gathered into a land. They're going to be gathered and given the whole earth, Matthew 5.5. 5. The meek shall inherit the earth. It's all of the people of God Saved through the new covenant in Christ's blood, David will be their king. One king. Then we also see not only will they have one king, but they will have one shepherd. 24b. They shall all have one shepherd. Now this takes us back to chapter 34. Look, look there at 34. I promise all this is relevant. In chapter 34... We read words of condemnation upon the, quote, shepherds of Israel. That is, their spiritual leaders, scribes, priests, and and the like. Verses 1 and 2, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, Should not shepherds feed the sheep? They were not fulfilling their duties. They're being judged. They're being condemned. They had not cared for God's sheep. And so, later on in chapter 34, we see God promising that they will have a new shepherd. Just like in the passage that we're reading, except notice this difference. Look at verse 11 of chapter 34. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. God says, I'm going to be the shepherd, personally, me. I'll shepherd them. Then notice 23 and 24 of that same chapter. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. Well, now David is the shepherd. But we just said God was going to be the shepherd. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So again, now David's the shepherd. God's going to be their God. David's going to be their shepherd. And at the same time, David's going to be their prince. What is a prince? It's the king's son, the heir to the throne, the next king. So we put all this together Hopefully it's fairly clear what we're dealing with. We have a little bit of a problem, a dilemma. because you've got a new covenant promise that's, that's being made to people from all nations under heaven, sealed in Christ's blood, we know from the New Testament. We also have a promise that David will be king over these people. We have a promise that these people will be united under one shepherd and one king. We have the God saying, I'm going to be their shepherd. We have God saying, David's going to be their shepherd. We have God saying, David's going to be their prince and their king and their shepherd, and yet God is going to be their shepherd. You see, it gets kind of, it could be muddled up. How can David be king and shepherd and prince, and yet God also be shepherd? And let's not forget, David is dead and buried, and his grave is with us to this day. See how that could be kind of confusing. I think you know how this, how this works out. Like we said last week, a lot of these dilemmas work themselves out if you just read into the New Testament and see how the Holy Spirit opens this stuff up. In John chapter 10 verses 14 to 16, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And they would have heard Him saying, Oh yeah, from, from Ezekiel. Yeah, I'm, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father And I lay down my life for the sheep. I'm not one of these people who, one of these shepherds who feeds myself at the expense of the sheep. I actually laid down my life for the benefit of the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they shall listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Christ says, I am that shepherd who's going to gather the people of God into one. And he's the mediator of the new covenant. Christ is the Son of God and God the Son. He's the root and the offspring of David. David's son, yet David's Lord. The true and greater David. Christ is God the Shepherd who gathers His flock into one under His care and Christ is our King. And He's God. It all fits together when you get to the man Christ Jesus. You see, now this this dilemma is solved. So I think it's safe to conclude from all of that that the word of the Lord by the prophet Ezekiel in this text, 37-24, concerns the promise of the new covenant made in Christ's blood encompassing all of the elect of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. To put it very briefly, what Ezekiel is about to say is a promise to all Christians. What Ezekiel is about to say in Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-four is a promise to to you if you are a christian now what's the promise back to 37:24 my servant david shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes again who is they in the passage We would say it's Christians. Everyone in the New Covenant, in Christ's blood, the they. All of those who have been gathered and are being gathered into one in Christ. All of those who have Christ as their shepherd. All of those who hear the voice of Christ and they say, That's my shepherd, I follow him. That's the they. They, all Christians, shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Now, what does the Bible mean when it uses the word walk? That's your pattern of life. It's not talking about your strut or the the bounce with which you carry yourself on your toes. It's talking about your pattern of life. How you live is your walk. The way you conduct yourself. And you do conduct yourself. That's your walk. So he says, they, all Christians, shall walk, that is, conduct their lives in my rules. The word rules means determinations in legal matters. You might have the word judgments. A judgment is a determination in legal matters. Rules are the ways that God has judged to be according to righteousness. That's it. Those are His rules. So it could be um, really opened up both positively and negatively. God has judged this to be right and therefore this to be wrong. And God lays that out. Those are His rules. So God promises that the way of life for those in the new covenant, that is all Christians, is as follows. You will conduct yourself... And your life according to the ways that God has determined are according to righteousness. Fairly simple, right? Now, we ask, how in the world are we supposed to know what's righteousness? How do we know what God has has judged right and wrong? His law. We have His Word, His written commandments. A Christian will keep God's law. The, The passage goes on. They, all Christians shall walk, that is, they shall conduct themselves in My rules, the ways that God has determined to be righteous, and be careful to obey My statutes. Now this phrase, be careful to obey, this takes us beyond just obedience. This word encompasses the internal activity of the mind and the heart as a person obeys. To be careful is to be attentive with your mind. If you say, be careful walking through the, the hallway, there's you know a, a loose tile or something, I don't want you to trip over it. That, you, what you're saying is, as you walk, observe, look, think, and just pay attention to what you're doing. Be careful. To be careful is to consider or think through the various factors at play in a circumstance. This is the word that was given to Adam when he was told to to work and keep the Garden of Eden. Be careful. Watch. It's a watchfulness. You might have observe and do. Look over with watchful care and attention and then act. See, this is not, you're not a robot. Your mind is involved now. Your heart is involved. You're weighing and measuring right and wrong and righteousness and unrighteousness as you live your life. That's what, he's, what He says. This is not simply conforming to a list. Well, I guess I've I got to do it because that's what the list says. No. This implies a diligent and watchful concern. It's an activity of the inner man to be careful to obey. What, what are they going to be careful to obey? God's statutes. Statutes. Statutes are authoritative rules or regulations, specific standards of practice that God has set. We say, how are we supposed to know what God's rules are? Where where are His standards? If only they were written somewhere where we could find them, we would know how we ought to live. The answer is in God's law. He's, he's, He's revealed it to us. In God's law specifically two texts from Deuteronomy, we see these ideas put together as a summary of His law. Deuteronomy 5.1, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Deuteronomy 8.11, Take care lest you forget the Lord God, your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes. These are ways of summing up God's Commandments, God's law. So those described here will be characterized by a willful attention to God's statutes. When we put these two ideas together, we see that God promises that those who participate in the New Testament or the New Covenant will have their lives ordered by the law of God. Their walk will not merely be a robotic or external conformity to a system but they will have a purposed, intentional, internal aim fixed at God's law inside them. I want to obey God's law. I'm going to be careful. I'm going to bring my mind and my heart into this this, uh, atmosphere of my ethics and my morals so that I can bring myself to conform to God's standards of right and wrong. That brings up the question... How can that be? We know that by nature, the the carnal mind is enmity with God. It does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. Carnally, naturally, apart from God, we can't do this. So we ask, how, how can this be? That leads us to the next text in Ezekiel, which we know fairly well. Back a few pages to Ezekiel 36. Again, we're asking, how is God going to do this? He's making these promises, and we saw a little bit of it last week, but here in Ezekiel, how's God going to do this? By what mechanism will God ensure that all Christians will conduct their lives according to the ways that God has determined to be righteous and that they will have a sincere and willful attention to God's statutes? How? By what mechanism? Back in Jeremiah 31, he said he was going to put his law within them and write it on their hearts. According to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, God's going to write his spirit on hearts of flesh rather than tablets of stone. If all this fits together, I said last week, I I see in the writing of the law on tablets of stone something of an allegory or a a, a type, uh, a picture conveying something to us. If all of this fits together, and that picture works of of tablets of stone, hearts of stone, where we are by nature, moving over to hearts of flesh, law written on hearts of flesh, if all of that fits together, then we would expect to find some concept of hearts of stone described somewhere in Scripture, and then a transition where those hearts of stone become hearts of flesh. We would expect that to, to be the case somewhere. And we would expect to see that somewhere along the lines of or in, in, in discussion of this new covenant. And that's what we have here in Ezekiel 36. 25 to 27, I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. There, there it is. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone. From your flesh. That's where Paul got that language in in 2 Corinthians 3. I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Hopefully you can see those connections. Take note of the surroundings of this passage, just to to prove all this goes together. Verse 24 says, I'll take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. We just saw that in, in the, the other text. This is a promise of some future blessing. Verse 28b of this passage, you shall be my people and I will be your God. Same consummation promise. It all goes together. It's the same theme as chapter 37. It's the same theme as Jeremiah 31. It's a promise concerning the new covenant, a promise to all Christians. Now, notice the nature of this promise here. Verse 25 I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. This is a spiritual covenant. The language is that of spiritual cleansing. He's going to wash them of idolatry and sin. And the transformation of the promise I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit. I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now in this verse, verse 26, there's a a parallelism. It's the same thing said two times with a, a little twist to help us to see, you could say to make it a little more colorful in our eyes. I'll give you a new heart. That's the first part. That would be parallel to remove the heart of stone in the second part. A new spirit I will put within you. That would be parallel to and give you a heart of flesh. Those those are the, the parallels in this text here. All of it is describing the one work that we call regeneration. And again, you see there the explicit language of a heart of stone. That's where it came from. Then in verse 27, we have the description of the indwelling Holy Spirit I'll put my Spirit within you. The Spirit is given to the believers. Now if we take Jeremiah 31, we saw last week. We take Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. We lay it beside here, Ezekiel. There's a difference of expression, but they all go together. They're all saying the same thing, just a little differently. And that helps us to get the full picture. Jeremiah... I will put my laws within them and write it on their heart. Paul, you are a letter written with the Spirit on hearts of flesh. Ezekiel, I will put my Spirit within you. I'll take out your heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. All of these are synonymous ways of saying the same thing. That the writing of the law is synonymous with the giving of the Holy Spirit. And this is to everyone in the new covenant. Now, what happens when the Spirit's given? Verse 27, I'll put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, when this happens, we become the subjects of God's causal activity upon us. What in chapter 37 was stated simply as a fact, you will walk this way and you will observe and do, here, it's described as the effect of God's Spirit working in us. I'll put my Spirit in you and cause you to do that and that. So the answer, how can that be? Or the question, how can that be? The answer is, God's going to cause it to be by giving us His Holy Spirit. And remember, all of this is the background of Christ's doctrine of regeneration in John chapter 3. This is what, what, where He got his, his doctrine from. In regeneration, the heart of stone typified by Moses' tablets, is taken out and done away with, and the new heart is given. It's a heart of flesh, a heart of life, a principle of grace, as we said several weeks ago. In addition to this, the Holy Spirit Himself is given to dwell in us. When God says, I will cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules, He's describing what the Holy Spirit does inside the people of God. To walk in God's statutes, that's the conduct of life. To be careful to obey, that deals with the will and the affections. Now now put all this together and see if you see the big picture. God promises here, as an integral promise of the new covenant, to give new hearts and His indwelling Spirit. Through the indwelling Spirit, God works in us. Both the inward aim at His commandments, I want to keep His commandments, and the power to actually keep His commandments. He will cause it so that we walk in the obedience that we actually desire. Or, God promises that we will work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. You see, that's where we started. This This is where Paul gets his theology of what a Christian will look like. He says he roots it all in the nature of our salvation, which is promised in the New Covenant, regeneration, the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's not grit your teeth and bear it. It's this is what God's going to do to you. God promises that a Christian will keep the Ten Commandments. Now, what kind of application can we draw from this? All of this is, is going to come to a head in the weeks to come. All of this was meant to be originally one message so I'm sort of parsing out my applications now. But for today, I would say this. Trust in the promises of God. Very, very simple to say. Trust in the promises of God. Now there's a Bible term that we use to summarize the idea of trust in the promises of God. We call it faith. Exercise faith. We see God's promises God said it, then I'm, I'm going I'm to live by that. I'm going to believe it to be true. I'm going to put my faith in what He said. God has promised that if you are His, if you're a Christian, He has already in the past taken out your heart of stone, given you a heart of flesh, and put His Spirit to dwell in you to cause you to walk in His statutes and obey His commandments. He has done that. Now here's what happens. We say yes and amen on, on the Lord's Day. Then Monday comes and we say, but I just see so much sin still in me. I see, uh, I see some disobedience to the commandments. I see that there, there are times when I, I know what God has determined to be right and I didn't go that way. I sinned. So then we begin to doubt. Well, I mean, I, maybe it's not really so. I see so much sin in me. How, how can this be true? Well, we go back to what did He say? What did He say He would do? Not, not what did He say you would do or what do you see in you right now? What did He say? See, we don't judge God's promises based on our experience. We say, what did God say? Okay, this is what I'm going to go by. He said He'd cause you to walk in His statutes and be careful to obey His rules. When a person takes their first look at Christ, their first true look of faith at Christ, sometimes they don't even realize when that is, but they, they take that first true saving look at Christ. They don't do that because they got themselves ready enough to look. They do that because they have realized I can't get myself ready. I've I've recognized there's 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 nothing I can do. Jesus said in Luke 5:31 Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He didn't say, but those who've started to get a little better. He said, no, those who are sick right now, you're sick. Typically, we don't go to the doctor until we realize, people like us, we don't go to the doctor until we realize, there's nothing I can do now. I don't have any remedy for this, or I've tried all of the remedies, and... Nothing's working. Think of the, the woman with the issue of blood. She's tried everything. All of the doctors, all of the experts, nothing's happened. It was at that point that she said, then I'm just going to touch him. I've tried everything else. That, that's what we have to get. It's not because you've started getting better. It's because you realize nothing you do is helping you get any better. You, you realize your miserable estate apart from him. And it's similar when we come to Christ, he doesn't say, well, get yourself a little bit healthier. Do what you can, and then come on in. We don't want to be, you know, we don't want to have anybody with a, a temperature or a fever in, sitting in the doctor's office. That that could never be, right? We, we don't get yourself a little better. Get your, get your fever up, make sure you're not contagious, then come on in. And if I could do that, I could fix myself. He doesn't say that. We have to realize we can't make ourselves any better. We, we come to the end of ourselves and all of our efforts, and then we look. We look at Him. It's at that point that the healing comes, because He is not only physician, He is ointment. He is the salve. Yes. He's, he's the, the medicine. The point of looking is when the healing comes. So when a person comes to Christ, it's because they have come to see that they cannot do anything for themselves. or are unable to do anything regarding their state in sin. And so they look outside of themselves to Christ in faith. And when Christ is applied by the Spirit, He gives power of new life. Now, I don't think anything that I just said right there is, is new to any of us if we understand the gospel and coming to Christ. But here's the thing. The, pro, the, the process, though there are some differences does not change once you become a Christian. You say, now now I'm converted or I'm regenerated. Okay, now I can get myself a little bit better so I don't have to bother Him so much. No, that's not how it goes. You're regenerated. And yet still, apart from me, you can do nothing. You're connected to the vine. You're in. You're united to Christ. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. Nothing. We never get to the point where we stop looking unto Jesus. In our sanctification, we never stop looking unto Jesus. So you say, well, this is the promise of God. I just keep seeing sin. It's like the more I look at Him, the further I go down this pathway, the more I realize... How deeply ingrained sin is in all of my members. Like it was, it was easy to you know stop cussing or whatever. But but now it's it's we're getting down to the the nitty gritty, and it's actually deeply ingrained in my in who I am. This sin issue, and that can cause us to begin to doubt the promises of God when we see. Well, I wake up on Tuesday and I'm not perfected yet. What did He say? What was the promise? The promise was not, I'll put my spirit within you and you will never sin again. The promise was, I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my commandments. We trust in the promise. We look to Him. We look to Christ in faith. It's the same Christ that we look to For that initial salvation, it's the the very same Christ, very same power, very same work that we're constantly looking to in our sanctification. We're claiming the promise. The promise is not simply, here's Christ crucified and raised so that you can be justified and regenerated. The promise is, here's Christ crucified and raised so that you can get up tomorrow and walk in new life. Always looking to Him. You look to Him knowing that you can do nothing for yourself, even as a regenerate person. He's the vine and will always be the vine. We don't get grafted in and then start a vine of our own. We're we're always branches. We, We have life only from Him. Look to Christ. Trust the promises of God. The promise of God is not immediate sinlessness. The promise of God is the gift of the Holy Spirit by which we come into a vital union with Christ. The promise of God is that over time, through constant dependence upon the Spirit of Christ and beholding Him, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And all this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit does it. We keep looking. Keep looking. There are two sides when it comes to Sanctification, and I won't get much into this, but there, there tends to be one side, one extreme that says essentially now that I'm born again, I, I put my boots on and I, it's all me striving. It's just me striving. It's me striving. It's me striving. I got to do it. I got to do it. I got to do it. And I, I can I can obey. I can obey. I can obey. I can do this. I can do this. The other extreme is the more uh, uh, higher life uh, Keswick movement idea, let go and let God, where they say, no, no, it's it's just faith. You just you just rest, and you're like, well, I'm resting, but I'm sinning too. So so what? So where the biblical the biblical uh, middle of the road, the, the proper outlet is strive through resting in other words we we labor but not in our own strength in him we produce fruit but not because i've got life in myself because he's the vine so i have to constantly be going back to the source of life constantly relying upon his power in me i don't use that to say well i'm not going to do anything I use that to say, now I can actually do something. It's always Christ. We live on Him, eating His flesh, drinking His blood, living upon who He is. That's how we're sanctified and we're transformed into His image. One author said, It's a law of our psychology that we become like that in which our interests and ambitions are absorbed. In other words, we, we become like the things we constantly stare at and are obsessed with. You don't believe that? You know, follow a guy to the Harley Davidson store and then check up on him in six months. You know, everything, All of his clothes are going to be leather and he's going to have t-shirts and a, you know, a dangly earring because he got a motorcycle. He became obsessed with it. And so now he's, he's the biker guy, right? He got into it. And it took him over. You know, the, the fishing guy, his, his clothing changes. The hunting guy, his clothing changes. Whatever. Yeah, pick, a, pick a hobby. W- whenever we become obsessed with a thing, we, we then begin to just sort of take on that likeness everywhere we go. That's, we're made like that because we're made to be transformed into what, what holds our obsession. We're made that way. Now, we ought to be introspective. We ought to be self-examining We need to be watching for sins and we need to be looking at God's law. We'll see that, um, I think that's next week. We need to be noticing those things and watching that, but we're not to be self-absorbed because if I'm just constantly staring at myself and watching myself, I become self-absorbed. I become, um, even if I'm very pessimistic, a a very self-absorbed person, just uh, absorbed in my own pessimism. (laughs) Um, we can't become self-absorbed. We should be aware of our sin, but we should only be captivated by Christ. Now, we'll come back to this in the future, but the question that, we, that I've historically wrestled with is when I'm, we say, well, I notice a sin, okay, then I've got to trust in Christ, Okay, what, what is the substance of what I'm believing at that point? Do I say, oh, well, Christ died for my sins and Christ was raised and just, it's really true. And so let's just just let's, let's do it. Or is there something more? I, I think there's something more. That's, that's next week. There's something more. We're, the death and the resurrection of Christ, and this is Romans 6, They're not merely things that got us into the kingdom. In Romans 6, he says, this is death to sin. Death to sin is through union with Christ. His death constantly being applied to us. He died and that death constantly being applied to me. And he was raised... And so we are raised to new life. His resurrection is constantly being made over to me and worked in me. So that as Christ, the death He died, He died to sin. As Christ died to sin, that spirit is applied to me by the Holy Spirit. It's worked in me so that I can look at my sin. I can say, Christ has definitively died to sin. That power is dead in me. No power here. I'm dead to sin. And now... Christ, by your Spirit, empower me to live like what I am. And the same with uh, the living like what I am. That would be the resurrection, walking in new life. It's in this sense, being captivated by Christ, it's in this sense we might say that the most effective way that we lay hold on the promises of the new covenant is by focusing our attention on the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and trust the promise of God. That's what we do at the Lord's table. We we focus our attention on the mediator, what He did, the words. See, now now that we've looked at these passages, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37 and 36, and and there are others, but when you begin to see all of these passages that fill up the substance of the new covenant, then when you come to the Lord's table, you say, oh, this covenant, this is my... Blood of the New Covenant. What is the New Covenant? The New Covenant is the promise of the Spirit. The promise of taking out of a heart of stone, giving a heart of flesh, writing in the law, causing us to obey His commandments. That's why it's a means of grace because we focus our attention on the covenant, the Christ of the covenant, and through that meditation, the Spirit gives power. You see, I've never heard of anything like that in my whole life because there's nothing else like this except Christianity. This is what makes Christianity... Its own thing, and this is what makes Christianity supernatural, supernatural, spiritual. Um, this week, I think it was, yeah, Monday, the question was asked what, what do you think are some of the things that are some of the most, the biggest problems in evangelical Christianity today, and specifically in the Reformed movement? And the answer was. People don't believe in the Holy Spirit. They don't, they don't believe in the supernatural. They don't, we, we have many doctrines, but, but no faith. We don't believe God does supernatural things, mystical things, right? Because we're, we're, And I, I was deeply convicted because I've noticed, it, noticed in my own prayer life when prayer requests are mentioned, I have a problem saying, God, heal them. We don't believe, we don't believe in healing. Yes, we do. Right? Yeah. Of course we do. Only God can heal people. Do I believe I can touch them and heal them? No. But why would, why would that passing gift slow me down in my willingness to go to the God who is the healer, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, upholds all things by the word of His power, speaks galaxies into existence, and say, Lord, I want You to heal them. Why am I afraid to do that? What if it doesn't happen? That, that's what I'm afraid of. All I prayed and it didn't happen. Does that make God any less faithful? Did He, did he cease being God because of that? No. It, it, it makes me feel bad about myself. It's, really, it's selfishness. My, my prayers are not heard like I think they ought to be heard or whatever. The point is, we lose, we have lost the supernatural of Christianity. This is one of those things that's supernatural, where I'm the type of person, I want to go to text, and I want to explain it so that when, when you, we get done, you say, I've got it, this sanctification thing, I am doing it tomorrow. It doesn't work like that. It's it's not a, a, a machine with instructions. Do this, do this, do this, do this. This is supernatural. Trust the promises of God. He said, look unto me and be saved. He says, behold Christ, look at Him, gaze at His glory, and as you do that, you will be transformed. Right? That's what He said. So if I'm not being transformed, if I'm still wrestling with sins... The problem is not well. God's promise is not coming true. The problem is I'm not looking enough. I'm not understanding Christ enough. I'm not devoted to to studying the gospel enough. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not absorbed in it enough. We need more of that. Read the scriptures. It's supernatural. When we come to the Lord's table, that's what we're doing. We're doing something supernatural. He says, "Do this in remembrance of me," and and we call it a means of grace. By this we're, we're, we're changed and transformed. We're communicated grace. That doesn't make any sense to, to my carnal mind, my, my natural brain. But, but that's what we're commanded to do. Do it. Think on Him deeply. Think about the promises of God. Think about the man hanging on the cross the reality of his death, the reality of his resurrection, all that the scriptures say what happened in that transaction. Think and meditate deeply, long and hard and consider it. We, we, we get caught up on a lot of very practical things, and it's not, they're not bad. But we don't, we don't meditate on the gospel, on the person of Christ. Right? We need to, we need to do that more. Amen. Let's pray.